Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you today, Rick? I am doing wonderful, Sarah, yourself. I am doing well. I have my three small humans are running around in the background today. They're home from school a little bit early, so that's always fun. Was that a planned early thing or something going on? Oh, Wednesdays are always early out days, so I have to try to manage meetings and children. Oh, my life's not that complicated anymore. It's always fun. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So um, I think we're together today because we actually have another special episode. Is that right? We do. And it actually has to do with small humans. It does. Why is that? I'm excited to learn a little bit more. Um, This week is Pediatric Sepsis Awareness Week. Nice. Nice. So we get to learn a little bit about what sepsis is and what they deal with it. And then, I mean, I'm kind of a little bit familiar with sepsis and big people, but not little people. Yeah. So we have a guest with us today who is an expert in this. Uh, Dr. Andrea Greenhines is here with us today to talk about pediatric sepsis. Yeah, welcome. Glad you're here with us. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah. So um, do we want to start with, you know, just telling everyone a little bit about you and what you do? Sure. Um, So I'm an infectious disease physician and I did uh, med-peds training. So uh, for my residency, I trained in both internal medicine and pediatrics. Um, at the end of my residency, then uh, became board certified in both general pediatrics and general internal medicine, um, and then went on to a combined ID fellowship. So um, completed time on both the pediatric ID and adult ID side, and then board certified in both uh, pediatric and adult uh, infectious diseases. Very cool. Yeah, sounds like a lot of training to get through and uh, and then a lot of boards to have to take. Yes, yes, it was. I got teased quite often. You know, I then I at the end, I was uh, HO8 and uh, so got teased quite a bit for that. Um, people used to say, hey, well, you could have gone to neurosurgery residency and been done sooner. And it's like, well, I didn't. But then I'd have to be a neurosurgeon, you know, I don't want to be a neurosurgeon. So, um, no, it, you know, I tell trainees all the time, it, it was a long road, but in the end, I was doing exactly what I wanted to do. And so it was all worth it. Are you planning to keep all of those, the general peds, general IM and the board specialties in both peds and adult? Yeah. So I, that's a great question. And right now, yes, I, uh, I was due to uh, recertify for the first time a couple of years ago and then the pandemic hit. So they um, pushed it out. So this year I had to make the decision, am I going to keep up my general peds and general internal medicine? And I, um, uh, it's a matter of pride uh, more than, uh, you know, any uh, future career options. And so I, I decided to, to go for it. So to try and maintain all those. So, so far I, I'm doing that quarterly uh, question rounds. So, so far so good. So we'll see. 
Is the pediatric boards uh, similar to the way that the medicine boards is set up? It's a, you said quarterly, uh, so is it both of them the same way or it's the 10 year yes. test option? Yes, so you get both, either option. I decided I, I did not want to sit uh, for a test uh, and so I'm doing the quarterly questions instead. I have four uh, young children and so studying uh, did not sound like a, an option for me, so. Uh, but yeah, it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, that is. Where, did you become eligible for both of them at the same time or, or do you do them sequentially like you did? So, yeah. Uh, so out of residency, I took both boards right away out of residency. So internal medicine is offered throughout the month of August. Um, and then uh, PEDS boards are just, uh, everyone takes them on the same day. Uh, I'm trying to remember that was October or November. Um, and then I did uh, PEDS, the PEDS portion of my fellowship first. Um, and so what happens is that most pediatric fellowships are three years uh, in length. It's typically one year of clinical experience and then two years of research. Um, and uh, what the American Board of Pediatrics does for combined uh, fellowships is just kind of knocks off the year, uh, one year of, of research and then just honors the time you do on the adult side. Um, so I did two years of pediatric ID and then did two years of adult ID and technically didn't finish uh, the PEDS ID portion until I was done with adult ID because they needed that additional research time um, honored. And so I, uh, I took adult ID, I'm trying to remember, gosh, it feels like so long ago. Um, yes, I took adult ID boards uh, right out of fellowship. Um, so I was first year faculty and one week shy of having, uh, from my due date of my first child. <laughs> so I remember walking into boards and uh, the study, uh, the proctors were very nervous to have me there, but luckily, <laughs> you know, it was local, so I didn't have to travel. Um, and I remember even making a phone call to uh, ABIM saying, hey, I'm, I'm due, you know, five days after boards what do I do if you know I go early and they said well just call us if you go into labor early and I thought no nah, you know what you're probably not going to be on my list of people to call but <laughs> thanks um and then luckily peds id uh, subspecialty boards they um, alternate every other year so they do half of them one year the other half the next so luckily I didn't have to take um, two sets of boards again within a year. So I did that then my second year as faculty took the PZD boards. So it worked out. Very cool. It's an awesome story. Yeah, yeah. My, my, my oldest probably learned more about ID than any sort of like sweet lullabies during my pregnancy, you know, or just like <laughs> a lot of board review. That's funny. Oh. Yeah, how did you know oh, you yeah. wanted to do both peds and adults? ID or before? yeah, even just peds and adults to begin yeah. with. I mean, it's kind of yeah. a, it's a little bit of like family medicine without the uh, without the OB, which I could live without OB. I mean, that was <laughs> you know yeah. nothing against obstetrics and gynecology. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, it was just my least favorite rotation when I was in yeah. medical school. So, um, but anyway. Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. So going into medical school, I thought I wanted to do family practice. Um, I'm a city girl, but um, actually thought maybe I wanted to do rural medicine. And um, as I went along, I just, I really actually liked um, inpatient medicine quite a bit more than clinic medicine. Um, I, I was, I, 
true medpeds. I really liked everything in my clinical years. Um, I thought um, with starting my third year when we, you know, do our clinical rotations, um, I was, again, keeping my options open. I went, uh, let's see, I did psych. I knew I was too gullible to do psych because uh, I, I was <laughs> believing this narcissistic individual who said he didn't, you know, have any sort of issues and whatever. And then I was like, yeah, this is interesting, but too gullible. Um, I actually thought I wanted to do OB and then every OB I worked with said, don't do this. You'll be miserable like me. Uh, so I thought, <laughs> well, maybe I should listen to them. And then I did internal medicine and um, actually started out with the outpatient side and, and really didn't like it at all. Um, I thought, man, this is really boring. But then I did the inpatient uh, rotation and fell in love. And it was a huge surprise to me. And I think... Um, one of the reasons was, you know, my attending was Jen Parker, who's, uh, who ended up being my residency program director. So MedPeds hadn't heard about MedPeds before. Um, and so she, she was able to introduce me to the field. Um, and then, you know, again, internal medicine, it surprised me that I liked it so much. Um, and then I did pediatrics, which I, I thought I was going to really like, and I ended up, um, Back then, uh, if you did it outside of the med center, your rotations, you were outside of Omaha and you were just in a clinic. Um, and I really didn't like it. Um, I really uh, just, I didn't like the clinic setting and didn't really have any inpatient experience. Um, so then going in, and, and that was disappointing because I, I thought maybe I wanted to do pediatrics. But then my fourth year, I did a sub-I right away. Um, in July in pediatrics. So it was all hospital medicine and loved it. Um, and thought maybe I should just do peds and then did a sub I in internal medicine and said, no, I got to do both. So I really like the more complex um, type of uh, patient care, the inpatient setting, um, as well as the ability to subspecialize um, and have a lot of options in subspecialty fields. Um, as far as ID goes, um, then going into residency, I really thought I wanted to do primary care or some sort of traditional medicine practice where I had a, a you know, a practice in the outpatient setting um, and then followed those patients in the hospital or some sort of hospitalist position, um, but really fell out of love with primary care and truly fell in love with infectious diseases. All my favorite Cases were infectious uh, in nature. Um, I liked the detective work of, of working up an infection or a potential infection um, and the treatments that were available. And you know, most of the time we can treat our infections really well. And you don't give up any organ system. You, you, you have to know it all. Yep, yep. About as broad as you can get. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, I'm sure our listeners are sick of me saying this, but since I have a dental background, um, <laughs> I am very, I have a general understanding of what sepsis is, but could you explain it in, in a little bit deeper level for everybody? Sure. Um, so in general, we think about sepsis as being essentially the body's kind of extreme reaction to an infection. Um, and then does damage the body in some way. So um, often a life-threatening side effect, um, 
which may involve some sort of tissue damage, organ failure, and even death. Yeah, that's been something that's been difficult to define. You can, we can say those things, but when we're sitting there looking at a patient, how do you think this person might have sepsis or this person does have sepsis? Think at the extremes, if they have definite sepsis or they don't have sepsis, it's easy. The, the areas in the middle is where it's gray or is more difficult, correct? Correct. Absolutely. Um, you know, and we've come up with essentially computer models to help people be alerted to early signs of sepsis and, and those can be flawed. Um, and I think it comes down to just clinical awareness and in looking at your patients. I, I give lectures to our uh, pediatric residents on uh, sepsis and, you know, what I think is, is most important is, is looking at the patient. Um, so taking a lot of different data into consideration, but examining the patient um, and, and coming up with, um, and having, you know, sensitivity towards that as a diagnosis. Yeah. I mean, for 50 plus years, they've been trying to come up with a way to predict it and figure it mm -hmm. out and know who needed specific treatments and what those specific treatments might be. Even in the 10 years that you've been out of training now, there's been a, a, a whole revolution where, you know, some definitions have come and went and we did all kinds of different things that have come and went with surviving sepsis campaigns. So it's been all yep. over the place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And kids are tricky. Kids are tricky. They are not small adults uh, and they can turn very quickly. So they can look great. And then five minutes later um, be, you know, have sepsis. So, yeah. I think that's an important thing to point out, and I, I, I applaud for how difficult your job must be because kids are not little adults, and internal medicine is not the same as pediatrics. I mean, I think intellectually, they're both kind of intellectual, kind of you, you solve mm -hmm. through complex problems and everything else, as you said, but I assume you have to use different skills and different set of eyes when you're looking at, uh, at, the, at the different uh, uh, groups of, of patients in both of those. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's hard because, you know, a lot of our patient population in pediatrics can't tell you how they're feeling um, or symptoms. And so, um, you know, part of pediatrics is obviously um, establishing good rapport and relationships with families so that they can um, help us take care of their children. Um, are there any classic signs and symptoms of sepsis? I know you said it's kind of, uh, can be difficult to identify, but are there any things that are just like stand out that this is sepsis? Yeah, so I think it comes back to vital signs are the first good thing to look at. So um, either a fever or hypothermia, especially in children, um, a lot of um, like neonates will become hypothermic or even severe sepsis. Um, in other age groups, uh, they can become hypothermic, um, have rapid breathing, rapid heart rate. Um, so, and that's hard too in pediatrics because there's different uh, ranges of normal depending on your age group. And so um, knowing what's normal in a eight-year-old may not be normal in a newborn in terms of vital signs. Um, and then just the clinical exam. Um, so if they have an altered mental status, if they're difficult to wake up, if, um, again, they're having rapid breathing, if their skin looks mottled, um, things like that. And then, you know, a good history, like, and, and that's where we depend on 
uh, the caregivers, um, families uh, when they're brought in or other teams, um, nurses, um, you know, documentation of things like urine output, if that's decreased, that can all alert us to possible sepsis. And um, um, for you as a clinician, um, you know, when you hear sepsis, why do you, why is that important? What what uh, difference does that make for the patient or for you? Yeah. So as an ID physician, it, it depends. You know, it it um, we it's important because it it alters how we treat the patient in terms of anti-infective therapy. Um, and so. Um, you know, if they're not on anti-infective therapy, uh, that is typically indicated in someone uh, with concerns for sepsis. Um, and, you know, we need to think about what, what are the possible etiologies of sepsis in that particular patient. So in pediatrics, a lot of times it's the age group um, that we're going to be thinking about different etiologies of sepsis. Um, so different age groups are at, at risk for different um, pathogens. Um, and with all other um, uh, kind of ID physicians' eyes, we, you know, you think about exposures or underlying conditions that may predis predispose them to different pathogens as well. I remember my first, I was, I think, a third year student in the ED, and my very first lumbar puncture was on a neonate who presented with fever and, uh, you know, one of the big differentials for young, very young children with that is, uh, you know, a, a neonatal meningitis type picture with mm -hmm. a groupie strep or an enteric organism. So that was my mm -hmm. first lumbar puncture back in about 1993. So uh, <laughs> that's awesome. And were you successful? I was actually, it, that's uh, awesome. it actually only had, uh, I think it had one, uh, one red blood cell. That's awesome. So uh, I don't know if like the trainees these days know that term, but we called that the champagne tap back yep. in when I was in training. And uh, you would get a bottle of champagne from your supervising resident if they were nice, if you had a champagne tap. Now our thresholds, um, I think both at Children's and UNMC, I think it doesn't, it doesn't say anything less than a thousand, right? So I think it just says RBC is less than a thousand, which- I think so. Then as a supervising resident, I got out of getting champagne because I thought, well, <laughs> I'm not going to give champagne for 999 red blood cells on that LP. <laughs> right, right. So um, this is all significant because um, at least the literature in adults, which I know, shows that if you think somebody has sepsis, early upfront appropriate treatment changes outcomes. Is there similar data with kids? I assume the physiology is probably pretty much similar, even if we're looking at different yeah. uh, you know, age groups and maybe different pathogens and those kinds of things. Absolutely. So um, early initiation of broad spectrum antibiotic therapy is indicated in pediatrics as well and is supported in our literature as well. So then with those, um... With those treatments for pediatrics, do they, I'm sure it, at least in dosage, they vary greatly from adults, but are there, um, you know, pediatric specific treatments that we wouldn't even consider for adults? It, so I think the path, you know, anytime we're designing some sort of clinical pathway, uh, we include different age groups and then um, other considerations if they're immunosuppressed or things like that. Um, 
So, so I, I lead the antimicrobial stewardship program at Children's Hospital. And so um, we make sure that either one of us from stewardship or another ID physician is uh, on board for any clinical pathway that involves an infection. Um, and so we help kind of um, optimize drug choice for, for those pathways, including sepsis. So, yeah. And I assume you guys have an antibiogram specific for Children's Hospital. I don't know, do you have an ICU specific one too, or is it just the, the facility at large? We have a facility, yeah, just an institutional antibiogram. I, a couple of years ago, um, we, we asked that the lab uh, create a separate antibiogram just for our purposes um, for neonates, so individuals less than one month of age as well as less than three months because our empiric antibiotic choice uh, for neonatal sepsis um, included, uh, well, was ampicillin and gentamicin. Um, and our E. coli resistance institutionally was uh, pretty high to both of those agents. Um, and so I, I just, you know, a lot of people said, well, that's okay. We're, we can get by with amp and gent for the neonates because they haven't had time uh, to uh, become uh, drug resistant, their microbiome. And I thought, well, do you, you have to remember where their microbiome is coming from. It's coming from mom. Right. Uh, and so uh, let's take a look at this. And sure enough, their resistance was their E. coli resistance was uh, just as bad. So as a result, uh, we've modified our empiric antibiotic choices for neonatal sepsis um, at children. So now we, we have to use ceftazidime um, and uh, ampicillin um, because we no longer have our third generation um, cephalosporin cephotaxime um, uh, IV1, sorry, parenteral. Um, and we can't use ceftriaxone in, in um, infants less than one month for concerns of hyperbilly. So anyway, so we have to go a little broader with ceftaz um, plus ampicillin. Interesting. Uh, is there an age that you consider the, uh, a child's biome to be their own and no longer mom's? Is there, <laughs> is there a time when that uh, actually changes? I shouldn't say microbiome. Um, so more of it's more of a early onset sepsis type picture where they're colonized um, with with mom. I think you know after a month uh, we wouldn't. Uh, well, even after a week, we don't call it early onset sepsis. So after one week of age, um, so you know it's there's no magic time frame. It's just a matter of um, creating their own. And and we know there's differences based on um, breastfed infants versus formula fret head and uh, babies that are born vaginally versus C-section. So it, it's very fascinating. So all that stuff, when you're looking at an empiric treatment or, or what's going on, you have to take all that into consideration. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think mo most of the time we're looking at um, age groups. So what what is what are these, um, especially when we're talking about um, infants, right? So what are they going to be most at risk for? Um, and then kind of go from there, school children, teenagers, things like that. Vaccine status is always really important too in older children, um, knowing that. 
Yeah. In older children, then I know like in adults, you know, we see lots of lung, lots of urine infections, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Is it similar type stuff as the children get a little older? Yeah. So respiratory infections um, would, I, I believe is still the number one etiology of sepsis in children overall. Um, so respiratory infections. Um, but yeah, we see, we see children with underlying um, immune conditions and Im immunosuppression that would place them at risk for different different pathogens um, than a than an otherwise healthy child. How common is pediatric sepsis? Uh, so there's there's a few different statistics out there. Um, I saw one uh, that in the U.S. there's about seven uh, seven hundred and fifty thousand cases of sepsis, um, and I think severe sepsis there's probably more like seventy five thousand per year, um, which would be the equivalent of about two hundred children per day develop severe sepsis in the U.S. Wow. Yeah. Um, aside from being immunocompromised, are there any other major risk factors that are in place for sepsis? Yeah, so um, the very young, so um, children less than one month of age, and I feel silly calling them children, they're just little tiny <laughs> babies, so neonates is what we say in pediatrics, neonates. Um, those with, you know, any sort of serious injury, a chronic medical condition, especially those who have some sort of immunosuppression or immunocompromised condition, um, including severe malnutrition, malignancy, any sort of dysfunction with their spleen, um, and that includes our sickle cell population. Um, anybody who's underwent a large uh, surgical procedure with large surgical incisions, um, indwelling vascular catheters. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good list. Good list. As, a, um, as an infectious disease provider, you mentioned sometimes immunodeficiencies and it's not, I mean, other than HIV and adult medicine uh, or meds we give to people, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's not as much, but what, what kind of puts a signal off in your head that you're like, hey, this kid might have something wrong with their immune system yeah. and we need to work them up further? Yeah, that's a great question. So we get a lot of those types of referrals to our clinic, actually. Um, a lot of it's parental concern. Hey, my kid's sick all the time. Um, do they have something wrong with their immune system? And I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, it's they're normal. They're a kid who's just getting recurrent viral upper respiratory infections. And um, it's, it's troublesome just because a lot of missed work and uh, school and nobody likes to see their kid, you know, ill. Um, but most of the time, that's what it ends up being. We get concerned when um, They've had uh, certainly more than one hospitalization for an invasive deep-seated type of infection. Um, and I would say even, I would say our immunologists say anyone who's hospitalized with a deep-seated infection probably deserves some sort of immune workup. Um, we, we are more apt to say, unless it's unusual, they kind of get one free. And then if they get a second one, then they, they get a workup. Does the organism matter to you guys at all or? Yeah, it can. I mean, if it's an unusual type of organism, um, you know, the 
I guess an atypical mycobacterium, for example, um, or if they're kind of having the same uh, type of, uh, you know, like a serratia or something that like that um, that's recurrent, that would kind of um, make us concerned. You know, being a parent is scary, obviously, and yes. so I think, uh, you know, one of the one of the hardest things that I had with doing pediatrics was um, was the fact that. Uh, you know, you have to have that rapport with the patient, with the parents, and you have to, you know, not that that was difficult, but they're in an emotional situation. Um, It's a difficult time. As you said, nobody really wants to see their kids sick and potentially dying in a hospital. Um, And so you have to, you know, do that part. Whereas I think with adults, you know, a lot of times we see older adults, not that anybody wants to see them sick and dying in a hospital either, but it's something that we know is part of life. Um, Right. And so that's, I think you guys have to be, you said you, you were gullible in psychiatry, but I think in some (laughs) ways you have to play a little bit of psychiatry in what you do. Yeah. So, yeah. And and that's an art, right? I mean, that's not something you can teach. And so I try and model for our trainees, both on the adult side and the pediatric side, to be honest, is reading the room. Um, and, and I do that in my adult population as well. You read the room, you read, you, you have to be really good at assessing emotions. I, on the adult side, I see oncology patients only. And so there's, there's high emotions there too, because these patients have been sick for a while typically. Um, and there's a lot of kind of end of life discussions as well. So, um, yeah, so you really got to read the room. You have to assess, um, in, in some sort of way, education level, understanding. Um, and so I think we're better about training our medical trainees on how to do all that now. But I think, you know, as, as uh, you know, teachers of uh, fellows and residents and students otherwise, we modeling it is, is the best way to teach. Yeah, I think that was something that I really just had a hard time struggling with is uh, trying to figure out that balance of, like you said, reading the room, figuring out how to approach a situation. Sometimes I, I you can't use the same approach everywhere, right? No, no. And certain, you know, in parents, especially some parents want every single detail. They want to have it explained almost at a scientific level. Um, and then others just want, um, sometimes they don't want really any a whole lot of information other than how's my child doing, which is fine. Um, and so, yeah, that's something that we, we try and assess for sure. So back to sepsis now, one of the big things with sepsis that is talked about and people will probably hear about is source control. Um, mm-hmm. So in very young uh, humans, uh, how much do you worry about, you know, we will see T-scan adults all the time that (laughs) might have something. Um, But now you've got somebody that might have another 70 or 80 years left to live, and you probably don't want to irradiate them over and over and over again. So how do you make that decision? For source control. So if we're worried about an undrained source, um, you know, we'll we'll image if we need to, uh, certainly. And our we have pediatric trained radiologists, so they're always going to dose adjust based on age and body size and who all knows what, um, but they're very, they're well, very well versed. And they'll even call and, and say, Hey, I think this is a better imaging modality, much like they might in our adult population. But, um, I feel like I, 
I'm lucky if I get off the adult side and, and someone who sneezed wrong uh, didn't get a head CT on my service. <laughs> so it's not that way uh, on peds at all, right? So, um, so yeah, so we don't, we don't jump um, necessarily or, or repeat imaging, especially with CTs as readily as we do on the adult side. Um, and so we have to be a little more creative and thoughtful sometimes about that. But if you did, um, a lot of our, oh, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I mean, in terms of sepsis, I mean, sometimes it is an, you know, a source control issue, but a lot of times these patients are just coming in um, with a, you know, a bacteremia essentially of, uh, from, um, you know, either they're a newborn um, or they have an intravascular catheter um, or we have, you know, a pneumonia that we know is likely the source, that type of thing. Yeah. So if you were worried that somebody had, let's just say, uh, you know, appendix, it'd probably be something common mm -hmm. in a kid. I mean, you could probably do an ultrasound in many of those yes. kids and, and look yeah. for an abscess and, and drain things that way. Yeah. So I think that's, that's a lot of the imaging modality. They'll start out with something like uh, appendicitis, a concern for appendicitis. Oftentimes they'll start out with an ultrasound um, and then go from there. So um, along with uh, sepsis, we talked about, you know, early antibiotics, identification, early antibiotics, look for a source, uh, know your antibiogram so that you know what antibiotics you're given and make sure that they're appropriate. Um, what kind of outcomes are we looking at with pediatric sepsis? Is generally, if you're recognized early, get appropriate therapy, things go well? Yeah, I think the latest statistic I saw on mortality is about four to eleven percent, and obviously that's all comers. So it it depends on um, what you're coming in with, right? Um, the pathogen and in, in any sort of uh, predisposition to sepsis. Our we've improved greatly over the decades, um, and a lot of that has to do, obviously, with the evolution of medicine um, and how we treat these patients, um, but vaccines are also to be credited. Um, and so vaccines have um, greatly decreased the incidence of sepsis um, due to the vaccine preventable um, pathogens. Hey, you look at something like Haemophilus type B, right? That's kind of a right. poster child for pediatric sepsis that uh, with vaccine success, right? Absolutely. So in my uh, career thus far, I've only seen one patient with Hib. Um, and it was in a, a infant that was too young yet to receive the vaccine. This statistic that Hib incidence has decreased by 99% due to immunization. Um, and the same with streptococcus pneumoniae as well in pediatrics. Yeah, so we're talking about Haemophilus influenza type B. That you'll still see infections for our listeners with Haemophilus influenza. The vaccine is for type B, which was very mm -hmm. highly associated with invasive disease in young children. So in adults, we mostly get non-typable Haemophilus infections, but you can still get, um, get other Haemophilus infections. They just tend to not be uh, as aggressive. Correct. And same in pediatrics as well. We'll still see the non-typable H flu. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So now you work obviously at two major medical institutions, UNMC and Children's. And so Children's is set up specifically for kids. So as a, as a pediatrician, um, you know, how important do you think it is to have these specialized children hospitals and that, you know, again, taking care of little kids is not the same. They're not little adults. And so having a special place for them to be able to get their care is important. 
Yeah, I think so. Having pediatric trained, um, you know, everybody from from um, the physicians to the radiologists to the nurses, um, everybody's gone into uh, pediatrics because um, they want to take care of children. And so I think that's that's really important. And it's it I think makes the experience really uh, nice for families as well to have kind of, you know, a focus on families and, and their children that we're taking care of. That's awesome. I've learned so much. <laughs> yeah, this has been great. I, I, um, this is, it's exciting for me because, you know, I'm only an adult doctor. So, yeah, um, right. <laughs> <laughs> only. At the, There's at the time end to do day. a fellowship, Rick, if you really want to. I'm also the fellowship director, so I'm always yeah. recruiting. If you really want to do another fellowship, <laughs> I think I think the gray hair probably takes me out of running. <laughs> you just need a beard, and time. then you'd be like, you know, Santa Claus <laughs> running around the hospital. That would be great. It'd be great. <laughs> um, I think we'd be a little bit remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about. Um, COVID as well and its impact on sure. children too. We talked to one of your colleagues, Dr. Sato, um, yeah. probably a couple months ago now, I think, uh, um, yeah. you know, and that was when we were kind of in the midst of Omicron and, you know, and seeing how it's impacting kids. Uh, you know, where are things at currently with, uh, with COVID and kids? Yeah, I think like most of the country um, and at least this area as well, we're taking a nice uh, deep breath right now. Uh, we're able to, or exhale at least. Um, so, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, we thought, hey, kids are going to be okay. And for the most part, they really were. Um, we, we certainly had hospitalizations related to COVID. A lot of those patients had underlying uh, conditions um, that would predispose them to more severe uh, infection with COVID. Um, but then, you know, shortly after the onset of the pandemic, then we started appreciating this MISC, which Dr. Sato probably talked a lot about. Um, and so that was a really unfortunate development in this pandemic. Um, and so we, we had uh, quite a few hospitalizations for that. I just looked at our data um, today, and we had over 100 um, hospitalizations at Children's for MSC. Um, and so we actually created a separate service. Um, it, uh, it was part of our immunocompromised service uh, now a year ago to handle those types of patients um, within the ID division. Interesting. And so mm -hmm. um, as part of, so Miss C, uh, you know, uh, it would did you guys have come up with any uh, kind of treatment for those kids? Uh, any part of a trial or anything that you guys were? That is a great question for Alice Sato. Um, yes, so we were part of a network. I think that, you know, essentially we'll be uh, describing our experience further with other institutions. Um, yeah, so there, you know, the protocols kind of change from over time, um, but it, it would involve uh, things like IVIG and steroids uh, and supportive care otherwise. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Where I don't are we... do, I, I get enough of the, I do oncology ID on the adult side, but I decided not to be a part of the immunocompromised care on the feed side. So I, I, I'm like, I'm just going to stick to the bread and butter, bone and joint infections. I'll take care of sepsis otherwise, but uh, yeah, it kind of 
uh, I have my fill of, of immunocompromised patients on the adult side, so which I do enjoy. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Where are we at with pediatric vaccines now? Uh, we're doing really well. Um, so there was a pause on um, the approval for uh, the Pfizer vaccine um, for individuals. Oh my gosh, don't quote me here. I should know this. Uh, under five. Uh, and so I, I do have my uh, five and seven year olds uh, vaccinated, um, but they put a pause on uh, the, the approval. Um, just the data wasn't supporting yet um, a good efficacy uh, in a subset of uh, it within that age group. Um, and so we're part of that trial actually. Uh, so we're participating in the Pfizer trial. Um, and so hopefully we'll have some uh, more data um, to support um, to support the vaccine shortly. Yeah, yeah, that that happened a little a little bit ago. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully we can get that figured out. Um, yeah. Why children seem to young children at least seem to respond differently to vaccines than or, or two different vaccines than older children? What does that have to right. do with just their development of their immune system yeah. or? Yep, absolutely. To, and that's probably the best way to put it. Just they, they don't have the same immune system as older children. So it's not as ramped up. Um, and so we, that's why we have different vaccines for, for the younger children. That's very interesting. I, uh, I have gotten my children vaccinated and they all seem to do very well. Um, if there were parents out there that were still really on the fence about getting their mm -hmm. children vaccinated, what would you tell them? Yeah. Vaccinated in general or with the COVID vaccine? With the COVID vaccine. COVID vaccine. I think talk to a trusted medical professional. And so, you know, sometimes we're asked to um, see a patient uh, in the hospital um, and it wouldn't, necessarily be for COVID uh, vaccine, but just, you know, a vaccine hesitant family in general. So either they have not uh, given their children any vaccines or they're under vaccinated. Um, and we, you know, we're happy to chat with the family about vaccines. Um, but I think we believe that the best person to do that is their trusted pediatrician um, or, you know, family practice physician or, or other primary healthcare provider um, because they have that established relationship and rapport that is so important in pediatrics uh, to deliver the best care possible. Um, and, and so we can, you know, be kind of the expert opinion or expert, um, uh, expert on vaccines, I guess, but really it comes down to uh, parents trusting uh, that professional. And if they're just meeting us for the first time, we're probably not the best person uh, to, to sway their opinion. Yeah, I agree. We, we struggle with that in adults as well. So yeah, it's, it's hard. You can tell immediately that there's uh, uh, you know, you're going to tell me what to do. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. So we, we defer typically, you know, and, and we, we will give um, kind of some references and there's some really good um, websites out there um, that parents can look at um, to get uh, good information about vaccines. Um, Children's Hospital of uh, Philadelphia has a really great site uh, put on by Paul Offit. 
um, who's uh, a pediatric ID physician and an author of lots of books on vaccines. Um, so that's a great site that we, we like to refer parents to. Awesome. Well, it looks like we are getting close to the top of the hour. Is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you want to? Oh, gosh. I don't think so. I could talk about ID all day, but. <laughs> yeah. Any other important yeah. facts of pediatric sepsis that we didn't kind of cover on already? Oh, gosh. I don't think so. Um, all good. All good. All right. Yeah, and then for all of our listeners out there, don't forget to join us in the conversation on Twitter and we will catch you for the next episode of Dirty Drinks. Yeah, and we greatly appreciate Dr. Greenhines joining us today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.